This morning we will be in the book of Job and consequently talking in and around the topic of suffering. And suffering is a weighty topic. There are many of you here this morning, probably many more than I could imagine, who are suffering significantly. And I realize that when you're in the midst of suffering, it's a difficult place from which to hear teaching, from which to be instructed about suffering. It's hard to hear in that situation. And also, as we spend time considering the message of Job and and the implications for us, uh, it would be easy, abstracted from any one of your individual situations, to speak glibly. So we need the Lord's help. So let's pray. Lord, help us this morning. For those who are in the midst of intense suffering, help them focus on your word this morning. For those who are not in the midst of intense suffering, maybe it's just not at the forefront of their mind, help them to listen attentively, to learn, so that they will be prepared for suffering when it comes. And Lord, help me not to speak glibly about this weighty topic. Amen. Do you ever find yourself preoccupied with big questions, the big questions of life, to which the Lord has not given us answers? Sometimes we're tempted to spend as much time thinking about what God has not revealed to us as we spend seeking to understand and walk in what he has revealed to us. The Lord has not revealed to us everything we may want to know, but he has revealed to us everything we need to know to glorify him, to walk faithfully before him. The question for us is, do we believe that what he has and has not revealed to us has been directed by his wisdom and goodness, such that we can be joyfully content to leave the secret things to the Lord, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. Willingness to trust the Lord with the unknown, rather than demanding that he answer our questions, is the issue at the center of the book of Job. If you haven't done so already, turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. In four movements, the book of Job teaches us to contentedly trust the Lord when his ways seem inscrutable. In four movements, the book of Job teaches us to contentedly trust the Lord when his ways seem inscrutable. In the first movement, Job suffers. We find this one in chapter 1 and basically chapter 2, though it ends just a little before the end of chapter 2, at the uh, end of verse 10 of chapter 2. So chapters 1 and 2 basically function as the setting for the plot, if you think in terms of narrative structure. uh, Chapters 1 and 2 are going to set up the stage for what's going to unfold in the rest of the book. Verses 1 to 5... Paul already read these verses to us, so I'm not going to reread them, but they um, introduce us to the main character. His name is Job. He is a very obviously righteous man and exceedingly wealthy. In an agrarian-type community, his wealth is measured in the quantity of livestock. And in case we're wondering, well, how do these numbers measure up? What do his neighbors have? Is this, is this impressive, or should I not be impressed? The text is clear at the end of verse 3 that he is the greatest man of all the men of the East. That Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil may initially perplex us. It's clear from the words themselves that this doesn't mean sinless perfection. The words simply don't mean that. And yet... The point of this statement about Job here is to make clear to us 
that there is nothing in Job that merits punishment or discipline from the Lord. I understand that how those two things relate, that it's not sinless perfection, and yet there's nothing in him that merits punishment or discipline from the Lord. Those two things and how they relate begs to be explored. And yet, uh, we don't have time for that, having to get through the whole book of Job this morning. But the point you must get is that there is nothing in Job's life for which the Lord would punish or discipline him. And the text ends there with that, that setting, introducing Job, by just commenting again on his righteousness, that he's even concerned for his children's righteousness before the Lord and offers sacrifices on their behalf. And now with Job introduced, we now move into the rest of chapters 1 and 2, where we essentially have two parallel sections. And each one begins with a scene in heaven and then moves to the, the resulting events from what happens in heaven. And those resulting events happen on earth. We could call them two rounds, round 1 and round 2. We're going to find round 1 in chapter 1, verse 6, through the end of chapter 1. And round 2 in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So let's begin with round 1 in chapter 1, verse 6. And of course, we begin here with the scene in heaven. Satan comes before the Lord, mentions that he's been roaming on the earth, and they begin talking about Job. The Lord's love for and delight in Job is palpable. Then Satan issues a challenge in the form of a question, which becomes programmatic for the rest of the two chapters. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has he will surely curse you to your face. Does Job fear God for nothing? Essentially, Satan's telling the Lord that he's drawing the wrong conclusion. The Lord seems implicitly to be drawing the conclusion that Job's devotion, fearing him, that's the Lord, is attributable to the Lord's own majesty, his own worth, his own glory. But Satan demurs. Job's godliness, Satan contends, has nothing to do with the Lord's worth, but is entirely attributable to what Job gets from it. Job's commitment, Satan suggests, is merely a mercenary commitment. Stop giving Job a paycheck and he won't show up to work anymore, Satan suggests. So this is Satan's challenge, and the Lord takes up the challenge in verse 12 by giving Job at least all he has, but not his life or his health at this stage, into Satan's power. And with that, the scene in heaven in round one is over. Now we move to the resulting events on earth. The assumption at the end of verse 12 is that as Satan departs, he goes to destroy all that Job has. Job doesn't witness the destruction. He hears it in from four messengers who come to him successfully, successively, um, all in the span of a few minutes. First, we find in verse 14, the first messenger comes and says that these Sabaeans, some raiding, marauding group, they came and they stole the oxen and the donkeys, and they killed the servants who were there keeping them. While he's still speaking, a second messenger comes, and this second messenger says that this fire of God, maybe lightning, we aren't really sure exactly what it is, but something falls from heaven and kills the sheep and the servants who are keeping them. Then, while he's still speaking, yet a third messenger comes, and this third messenger reports that the Chaldeans make a raid, and they steal the camels, and they kill all the servants who are keeping those camels. And finally, while that third messenger is still speaking, a fourth messenger appears and says that a great wind knocked over the house in which his ten children were living, were staying, were partying, whatever they were doing, and kills them all. So in a matter of minutes, 
we're told that everything Job has is gone. If you compare those verses, those four accounts, with verses 2 and 3, where all that Job has is recounted, there is 100% overlap. The point is, everything Job has is lost, and he discovers this in a matter of minutes. And then the final three verses of chapter 1 recount Job's response. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. When the narrator tells us he did not blame God, he essentially means Job didn't attribute any unseemliness, inappropriateness to the Lord and what has happened. He didn't question the Lord's justice or goodness. So Job passes the test with flying colors. But then we move to chapter 2, and we enter round 2. And it follows the same structure, beginning with a scene in heaven and then moving on to the resulting events on earth. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Again, you're going to notice tremendous parallelism between the scene in heaven with the scene in heaven in round 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Without cause doesn't mean the Lord has no purposes in this. It means there's nothing in Job's character that would be the basis for such calamity coming upon him. Continue in verse 4. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. And now we move from heaven to the resulting events on earth. Verse 7, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. I don't know what you think of when you think of these boils, um, but clearly this is an escalation, a significant escalation beyond what happened initially. Him losing everything he had, including his ten children. So whatever type of physical malady this is, it is severe. And then we see the response. And the response in round one, we just hear Job speak. Here, we first hear Job's wife speak. And whereas Job had said, blessed be the name of the Lord, look at verse nine. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But now we hear Job speak. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Satan had suggested that Job would curse God as a result of these calamities. At the end of the first round, we find Job blessing God, not cursing him. And at the end of this round, we first hear from his wife, encouraging him to capitulate in the midst of this test and to curse God. But Job doesn't capitulate, and the narrator concludes by affirming Job's integrity through all of this. Now, I want to make, take a moment here to make an observation about the, the actors, the agents, in bringing about Job's suffering. We can group the actors or agents into three groups, or we might think of them in a hierarchical arrangement as three tiers. At the bottom of these three tiers, we have various human or natural causes. 
In chapter 1, verse 15, we read that the Sabaeans are the ones who took the oxen and donkeys and slew the servants. Sabaeans did it. In chapter 1, verse 16, we read that it was a fire of God falling from heaven that burned up the sheep and the servants. Probably here, uh, some kind of natural disaster. In chapter 1, verse 17, we read that the Chaldeans took the camels and slew the servants. So humans, came, I mean, the Chaldeans. Chapter 1, verse 19, we read that it was a great wind that caused the death of the children. So we see Sabaeans and Chaldeans, which would be human actors or agents, and then this thing that might be lightning as well as a great wind, natural disasters. And at, bottom of these, at the bottom of these three tiers of actors or agents in bringing about Job's suffering, we find humans and natural disasters. That's clear. Next, going to the second tier, the middle tier of these three tiers of actors and bringing about Job's suffering, we find Satan. Chapter 1, verse 12, we read that God put Job's possessions in Satan's power, and all that results follows from that. So we can clearly see that Satan is behind the human actors and the natural disasters on tier 3. In chapter 2, verse 7, we read that Satan is the one who smote Job with sore boils, so clearly Satan is an actor involved in bringing about Job's suffering. So just to summarize those first two tiers, we've seen that at the bottom tier of causes for Job's suffering are humans and natural disasters. At tier 2, working through, kind of animating those humans and natural disasters would be Satan. And then, the top tier, we find the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. There we find the Lord putting all that Job has into Satan's power. So the Lord is involved in Job's suffering, according to this verse, at least in a permissive way, permitting these things to happen to him. And that's clear. He says, everything he has, you can touch, but his own person, you cannot touch. And Satan clearly cannot. He has to come back and get more permission to be able to go there. When the Lord sets up a boundary and says, Satan, you can go this far, but no further, he really means not, please don't go any further, but you cannot go any further. So there we see a permissive level of the Lord's involvement in Job's suffering. But notice chapter 1, verse 21. This is where Job is verbalizing his response to his suffering. And here we find Job attributing the loss of his children, the loss of his servants, and the loss of his livestock to the Lord. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job says. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, we again find the Lord putting Job's health into Satan's power. So, in that text, again, there's at least a permissive dimension to the Lord's involvement. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, Job indicates that God is the source of his adversity. He says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And I'm going to bring in one more relevant text from the end of the book. Chapter 42, verse 11 reads like this, then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. So in the top tier of these three tiers of agents or actors involved in bringing about Job's suffering, we find the Lord. So let's review. Is Job's suffering attributable to humans like the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and to natural causes like lightning and wind? Yes. Did Satan bring this suffering on Job? Yes. Did the Lord bring this suffering on Job? Yes. And I've taken some time to carefully just make simple surface-level observations about the text here because much of what follows in the rest of the book relates to the character of God in light of Job's suffering. The Lord's justice, the Lord's goodness. And some people would like to insist that Job's suffering is merely a result of the fall, right? The world's fallen, bad things happen. Um, you have violent, thieving humans like the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. You have natural disasters like the lightning, like the wind. And you have diseases. Whatever caused this 
these boils that Job has. So is suffering attributable to each of these things? Yes, suffering is attributable to the fall and to all those individual manifestations of it. That is clear. But does it stop there? With God knowing these things will happen, but merely being a passive observer of all that unfolds in the universe? No. The text of Job is clear about God's sovereign involvement in Job's suffering. And it's unhelpful to create a false dichotomy between some things that are attributable directly to God's sovereignty and other things that are attributable only to humans, such as, or only to humans, natural disasters, diseases, etc. God's sovereign control extends over all events, including these ones that bring about suffering. And friends, this is good news for us. This is good news for us because our suffering is not the result of the arbitrary effects of the fall, with God merely observing us in our misery from some safe distance. If that were so, we would be bereft of the comfort of knowing that our wise and good God is intimately involved in our suffering, working behind and through our suffering to bring about his good and loving purposes in our lives. It's not simply true because I, I think it is. It's not true because it's comforting to think it's true. It's, it's what the Word of God, specifically we've seen here in Job, but elsewhere also, teaches. So with those important observations about God's sovereignty in place, let's return to where we left off by summarizing these first two chapters. We're introduced to Job, a righteous man and a wealthy man, and while he's going about on his life, about his life on earth, Satan approaches God to suggest that Job's righteousness has nothing to do with who God is, but simply because Job realizes it pays to be godly. The Lord gives Satan permission to take away the things that he suggests are the reason Job fears God, Job's children, Job's servant, Job's possessions, and then finally Job's health. And what's the result? Job passes the test. Job has everything taken from him that Satan has said were the reasons Job feared the Lord, and yet Job continues to fear the Lord. And Job thereby demonstrates that it is because of the Lord's worth that he serves the Lord, not simply because he gets immediate benefits from serving the Lord. Now, where's Satan? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but he's nowhere to be found, is he? We can assume he, he's cowering somewhere, shamed. And we can also infer that the hosts of heaven are watching on as the glory of God has been put on display through his servant Job, who has demonstrated his worth by saying that it's not because of any of the things the Lord gives me in the short term that I serve him, but because of who he is. Now, please don't miss this next piece. It's crucial that we notice this to, to understand the book. Each of these two rounds begins with a scene in heaven before it then goes to what actually happens on earth. And those scenes in heaven provide very helpful explanations about what follows on earth. But that is information we, as the readers, are given, but Job does not know that. We, the readers of the book, are given inside information. Job does not know what has happened in heaven to lead to his suffering. All Job knows is that he is going along, fearing God, God's blessing him richly, and suddenly, in a span of minutes, he's informed that everything he has has been wiped out, and then shortly thereafter, his health is wiped out to the point that he barely has his life. That's all Job knows. And without the knowledge of what has transpired in heaven, what transpires on earth is even more perplexing due to the extremes that are brought together. The book of Job traffics in extremes. Job is righteous in the extreme. He suffers in the extreme, and it's the bringing together of those two extremes in one person. The one who is most righteous also suffers most that creates the tension that's going to lead to the dialogues to follow in chapter 3 and those that follow. So with that, let's proceed now to the second movement. The first movement, Job suffers. The second movement, 
Job presses the why question. Job presses the why question. Just as it seems the plot of chapters 1 and 2 has reached resolution, it takes off again, and this time for the main plot of the book. As Job is sitting there with nothing but his life, miserable as it is, and his wife, without whom he'd probably be better off, three friends of Job arrive. And this launches us into a series of dialogues. Get this, we're, ta- we're starting chapter 3. This is going to launch us into a series of dialogues that will continue for all but the last eight verses in chapter 42. And the bulk of it is dialogue among humans, chapters 3 to 37. And then after all of this time given to hearing from men, we finally hear from the Lord in chapters 38 through 42. And at the heart of the dialogues among humans is the question, why? The quiet, trusting repose of Job at the end of chapter 1 when he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That quiet, trusting repose of Job doesn't continue. Interestingly, there has been much talk about cursing in chapters 1 and 2. Job sacrifices in case his children cursed God. Satan um, is saying that when Job's positions are, possessions are taken away, he will curse God. But Job doesn't curse God, but actually at the end of round one, blesses him. Again, Satan says that when Job's health is taken away, he will curse God. Then Job's wife tells him to curse God. Again, he doesn't. But in chapter 3, verse 1, for the first time, we find a curse on Job's lips. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now note, Job does not curse the Lord. That's significant. But he does curse the day of his birth. Basically, he asks why he was even born, thereby questioning God's wise providence. This why question continues to be pressed with its built-in inherent demand that God explain himself rather than simply refusing to trust him. And as the dialogues unfold, Job's friends respond to his initial statements, and then he responds back to them. And this continues through chapter 31. We're in chapter 3. That's 29 chapters of this. And then, when the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, run out of words, another man appears, Elihu, and he begins to speak. And he speaks from chapter 32 through chapter 37. What Elihu says seems to be a little better than what the friends say, but it's still wide of the mark. So, 35 chapters of men talking and insisting on answers the Lord has not provided. Why does the book spend so much time recounting all of this dialogue, only to finally, as we will see, dismiss it? It's a powerful way to present what we all know to be our experience Rather than contentedly trusting the Lord, we spend so much time trying to come up with our own answers and demanding that God give us answers. All the while, the reader, with his omniscient perspective, observes the friends insisting that Job must be guilty of some serious transgression, and this affliction must be punishment for that. Even Elihu, though not quite as brash, still insists that the Lord must be disciplining Job, Maybe not, for some, maybe not a punishment for some major transgression, but maybe just disciplining him because there's some remaining pride in his heart. But the reader knows the truth. The reader's been told that Job is blameless. And the Lord says that the calamity was brought upon Job without cause. Also, the reader knows what happened in heaven to precipitate this. The Lord delighted in Job. And this whole trial, with Job continuing to fear the Lord is resounding to the Lord's unsurpassed worth. And Satan has been terribly shamed. So the reader, with this omniscient perspective, sees the folly of these men and the amount of time they are given to prattle away with all of it leading nowhere just drives home the point about the folly of our restless demands to be given answers for why God does what he does. One author, Michael Fox, in an article, helpfully writes this. 
The failure of human wisdom is demonstrated also in the breakdown of language. The extraordinary mass of dialogue in itself demonstrates a fascination with language. It is as if everyone believes that the terrible problems of existence can be wrestled to the ground by talk. Lots of it. But they only talk their way into a blind alley. They accuse each other of being deaf, blind, and stubborn. And they are. And this plot, which has moved along with the demand for an answer and no answer forthcoming, finally reaches what is simultaneously sort of the peak, the climax, and the resolution as the Lord shows up and the Lord speaks. So go ahead and flip forward a long ways past all of these dialogues to chapter 38. And with this, we move on to the third movement in the book of Job. And in this third movement, Job hears from the Lord. Job hears from the Lord. Now, throughout this whole section, beginning in chapter 3, it's just structured around Job says, Eliphaz says, Job says, Bildad says, Job says, Zophar says, and continues on and on and on like this. And so it just kind of continues right on along, except this time a new name is introduced. Chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord said, answering to Job, out of the whirlwind. These speeches of the Lord, like I said, are both kind of the climax of the narrative. It brings the most tension. Suddenly the Lord shows up. What's going to happen now? And yet also, hearing from the Lord brings resolution. After the Lord finishes speaking, there's only several verses remaining in the book, and for good reason. When the Lord speaks, nothing remains to be said. And what is most astounding about what the Lord says, what is most astounding about what the Lord says in these chapters, is that after all of these demands to know why God has brought this on Job, the Lord never answers why. We must not miss this. This isn't only interesting, this is critical to understanding the purpose of the book of Job. Sometimes it's said that Job is about explaining suffering. The book doesn't explain suffering. Rather, the book is about trusting God when things don't make sense, when there's no answer to the why question. Suffering is the setting in which the issue is raised, but the message of the book applies anywhere we struggle to trust God with what we don't understand. So let's take a look at what the Lord does say. There are four chapters here, and we won't be able to read all of it, but let's at least get a flavor for what the Lord says. First, look at chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. A little bit of sarcasm. Now, um... Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Then he asks essentially, did you have any part in separating the dry land from the sea and, and helping them to maintain their, their boundaries so that one doesn't overflow the other? Then in verse 12 and following, he asks Job if Job's ever caused the sun to rise. I mean, at one level, it's, it's a ridiculous question to ask a human, right? Did you ever meet someone in the morning and say, hey, did you cause the sun to rise this morning? But that's the point. It's ridiculous. Of course, Job didn't do that. And of course, the one speaking to him did. It's that, that difference, that transcendence that exists between them that is being accentuated. Next, still in chapter 38, look down at verse 16. The Lord asked Job, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you ever been down to those deep trenches in the Pacific? Chapter 38, verse 18. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Can you measure it? Can you tell me how big it is? Tell me if you know all of this, the Lord asked Job. Then continue on down to verses 
uh, verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? There's these constellations and these stars. Whenever you look at them in heaven, they're always basically in the same arrangement, right? So the Lord's asking, Job, are you the one who's making sure they all stay in that arrangement, binding them together so they don't just spread out? He continues there, verse 32. Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you just look at the cloud? Hey, cloud, go and rain. And then it rains. Look at chapter 39. Going down to verses 19 and, and following. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. Going down to verse 26. Is it by your understanding, Job, that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? And now let's get to chapter 40. The Lord's continuing to speak with these next two verses, um, but he sort of summarizes a lot of what he said so far. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder, that's referring to Job, who's finding fault with God, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then Job answers. And <laughs> what does Job say after all this? Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. And then the Lord continues speaking again. He's going to continue through the rest of chapter 40 and 41. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? And then in chapter 40, verse 15, through the end of chapter 40, he refers to this great and mighty creature called behemoth. Humans struggle even to capture it, and yet the Lord created it. And then chapter 41, it's all devoted to this other great creature called Leviathan, and humans won't even dare to go near it, and yet again, the Lord created it. So, to summarize the Lord's message, the Lord, as creator and sustainer of all there is, is the only one who can manage creation and ultimately make all things right. Job can complain about injustice. He can do nothing to fix it. The Lord is utterly able to, to deal with the forces of evil. God knows what he's doing, and if that involves suffering, we need to trust him. Essentially, this speech establishes the Lord's trustworthiness while undermining human perception of having a position from which God can be independently evaluated. Think about that. That's, that's what's happening. When man demands an answer, he says, I occupy an independent position from which I can independently evaluate God. That's just silly. Anything that becomes some kind of external position by which God's evaluated would, would be undermining God's godness. Wow, what a majestic God. Before this God, we, with all our demands that God give an account of himself to us, we all shrink back into our places. The words of Job, as we already saw in chapter 40, at the beginning of chapter 40, are so instructive to us. We need to follow his model. Behold, I am insignificant, he said. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Although God does not explain to Job why he is suffering, he does rule out one possibility, namely that he is unjust or that he is not good. In chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? In other words, you're contending with me and suggesting that because you're so certain you must be righteous, you're assuming that I must not be just. And he's, the Lord's ruling that option out. He may not tell him why, but he's going to say that's, that's an answer that's not correct. And then finally, in chapter 42, these dialogues reach a conclusion and the plot reaches its full resolution. 
Look at chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, so here's Job finally responding to what the Lord's been saying for the past four chapters. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Lord. And now he quotes at the beginning of verse 3 here something the Lord had said at the beginning of his speech to Job. In that place, the Lord had said, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then Job responds to that. Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then again, he quotes from uh, the Lord earlier, when the Lord had said, Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. And to that, Job responds, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job here confesses that he has misspoken in his speeches, beginning in chapter 3, by demanding an answer and calling the Lord's justice into question. So what do we make of Job in light of this, Job's repentance? I mean, did Job pass the test? Did Job stand strong? If, if we ask the question very broadly like that, I think we'll get what seem to be contradictory answers, but I think that's because we're, we're supposed to evaluate it from some different angles. The book's asking several different questions or giving us perspectives on Job that are slightly different. The first question we could ask of Job about Job is this. Did Job sin prior to and as the cause of the calamity that came upon him? And the book is crystal clear, no. He did not. Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, and the suffering that came upon him was without cause. Secondly, we could ask, did Job defect from fearing the Lord as a result of the calamity that came upon him? So that would be the test that was brought upon him in chapters 1 and 2. Did he fail that test? I think the answer to that is no. This question, whether Job will stop fearing the Lord if everything is taken from him, is what chapters 1 and 2 are all about, and they are very clear that Job does not stop fearing the Lord because of his suffering. But here we come to the third question. Did Job misspeak in his wrestling with why this happened? Yes, he did. The evidence that Job did misspeak, we saw in chapter 38, verse 2, when the Lord says to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In chapter 40, verse 2, the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then we just saw in chapter 42, verse 3, the Lord's, or sorry, Job saying, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And finally, as we just saw in chapter 42, verse 6, Job says, Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job was righteous. Job didn't have any flaw in him that led to the calamity. And he passed the test. He continued to be faithful and fear of the Lord, but he did misspeak as he was wrestling with what happened to him. And he repented of it. And we too can misspeak as we wrestle with the suffering that happens to us. Job is sometimes appealed to as though it condones railing against God for what he brings against us. And the book of Job actually does just the opposite by condemning Job for having done that. Now, Granted, there's forgiveness, right? The Lord is quick to forgive him as he confesses that. And like Job, when we are questioning God's goodness in our circumstances, we too need to come to him and acknowledge that we had sinned against him in that and seek his forgiveness and repent. So as we come to the middle of chapter 42, the plot in the story is basically resolved. Job's put back in his place. He no longer is asking why. Um, at the end, in, in the middle here of chapter 42, the Lord's going to deal with Job's friends. And the questions and demands for answers have all vanished. No one's asking those questions anymore. And on the flip side, Job is marveling at who the Lord is and recognizing that he is absolutely worthy of our trust. It's not as though Job's simply saying, the Lord's reproved me strongly. I, I, I better shut up and not say anything more. No, Job doesn't even, he's not even interested in asking questions anymore in light of the vision of who the Lord is. 
So with that, that being the third movement that Job hears from the Lord, let's now move to the final and fourth movement. Job is restored. Job is restored. This is basically just the last eight verses of the book. Here, the book explains that Job had all of his possessions restored twofold, and for his children, those ten children were replaced. This is wonderful, but it's also a bit perplexing. It's often said that the book of Job challenges the retribution principle. What's the retribution principle? It's essentially what you would know from the book of Proverbs or many other places, that everyone gets what they deserve. You reap what you sow, right? The righteous are blessed, the wicked suffer. That's the retribution principle. But the ending makes it clear, meaning that Job, because he faithfully withstands this test, he actually gets back everything and more, makes it clear that the retribution principle isn't scrapped as a whole. The book of Job merely corrects misunderstandings about that principle, particularly the misunderstanding that justice will be meted out in the short term. God will make all things right. I think to completely do away with the retribution principle would say that there will be injustices that persist into all of eternity. And the Bible won't allow for that. The Lord will uphold perfect justice in the end, but in the meantime, in the short term, it will often look very different with the righteous suffering and the wicked flourishing. So what can we infer from this? Well, since it's not always going to, there's not going to be this perfect relationship between a person's circumstances and their character in the short run, we must not think, for one thing, that our righteousness will protect us from suffering. We must not think that our own righteousness protects us from suffering. Secondly, don't look at someone who is suffering and make inferences about their character, assuming they are wicked. When calamity comes upon a person or a community, don't draw rash conclusions about why that happened, suggesting it must be punishment for their wickedness. That was the error of Job's friends, for which they're reproved. We simply don't know those things. We don't know why the Lord brings any particular event upon someone. On the flip side of that, don't look upon someone who's prospering and make the immediate conclusion that that indicates God's approval of them. And finally, when you are suffering, don't jump to the conclusion that your circumstances reveal God's disapproval of you. When you are suffering, don't immediately jump to the conclusion that your suffering reveals God's disapproval of you. At multiple times in Job's speeches, he says that the Lord is his enemy. The Lord's opposed to him. And yet we know from that omniscient reader perspective that it's actually just the opposite. As I said, the Lord delights in Job. And Job receives this suffering because he's, he's basically the Lord's trophy of righteousness. When Satan's coming to, to challenge him and he's got to find someone, this is the example of a righteous man. He goes to Job. So, Job's saying, because I'm suffering, the Lord must be opposed to me. He must be disapproving of me. He's not sure why, but he assumes the Lord's his enemy, and yet it's just the opposite. So we should not move from our suffering to conclusions about what the Lord thinks of us. The ending of Job reminds us that the Lord will ultimately bring about perfect justice, but in the meantime, we must not be surprised when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. So the fourth movement in the book of Job is that Job is restored. We may never know why we suffer, at least in specifics. We can certainly um, know that the Lord's glorified by it. We can certainly look at certain passages, James 1, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, that would tell us the Lord uses the suffering to sanctify us and to mature us. But the point of Job isn't to draw out those generic 
reasons, purposes of the Lord in our suffering, but is to say that we never know the specifics. We don't know what's going on in heaven. We don't know what specific purpose the Lord has. And for that reason, why, why is not the best question, nor is it even the most important question to ask in the midst of suffering. Why is not the best, nor the most important question to ask in the midst of suffering? The Lord's response to Job doesn't explain why. The Lord only reminds Job of who he is, and it's that knowledge of who the Lord is that fuels Job's trust in the Lord. The bottom line is we have no right to demand that God give us explanations for anything, much less our suffering. And on the contrary, we have an obligation to trust the Lord even when we're in the dark, metaphorically speaking, in the sense that we just don't know what's, what's going on. But to present it merely as an obligation, that obligation to trust the Lord when we don't know, would be to misrepresent Job because it's not simply, as I alluded to earlier, that the book of Job is saying, might makes right. Who could contend with the Lord? Therefore, shut up and stop asking questions. That's not what the book of Job is saying. When the Lord speaks to Job, he doesn't simply issue a demand. He could have done that quickly and been done with his speech in chapter 38, verse 2. No, the Lord commends to us his trustworthiness in the display of his grandeur, of his power, and of his wisdom. At the root, at root, the failure to contentedly trust the Lord when his ways seem inscrutable is a theological failure. We've forgotten the greatness of our God. And the Lord's speeches here at the end of Job are so helpful because they draw us back to a high view of God and thereby provide us with the fuel we need, a high view of God, the fuel we need to trust him even when there are no answers. I'm going to end with this question. It's not my question. This Carson from his book, How Long, O Lord, and it's his, but he's obviously alluding to the words of our Lord. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery, and here's the question, will there also be faith? Let's pray. Lord, we we can identify with Job. Not, not with that level of righteousness. None of us would, would put ourselves there. But with struggling to understand why, Lord, sometimes the hardest things about suffering isn't the suffering itself. It's the disorientedness that it brings about. It's the confusion. And Lord, we make it worse for ourselves, we know, because we keep contending against that and we thank you for just this, this vision of you which reminds us of who you really are. You are the Lord we can trust. You have all things under your control, and not only do you have them in control, you are moving them to a good end. And we may never know exactly what role our suffering plays in that, and Lord, we frankly admit we don't need to know. It's good enough. It's a privilege to know that, and we don't even desire anything more than to simply know that you are purposing it all for your glory and for our good. Help us to trust that. Amen.